Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every week to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. We are glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Okay, tell me what these names mean to you guys. Um, split Kit, Messy Tessie, Dis- Disgustin' Justin. Bring it back fourth grade, Dave. Frying Brian, Patty Putty. Sarah, is this ringing any bells for you? No. Harry Gary, Mad Donna. No. Uh. Uh-uh. I'm uh, I'm talking to you about garbage pail kids. Oh. Might be a little bit before your fan. time. Okay. Yeah, I think I think that was like a little OG for me. <laughs> <laughs> it was a big, big deal. I've uh, fallen down a deep, dark hole of garbage pail kids after discovering my older brother's binder of them in my uh, in in an old box of things, and realizing that these things. Uh, are worth a lot of money, but this is why it might be interesting to you, Sarah. You've read Mouse by Art Spiegelman. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah I know, Sarah, you're our Holocaust expert. Uh, expert. <laughs> <laughs> all Holocaust all the time with Sarah yes, Condon. my parents are so proud. <laughs> well, Art Spiegelman uh, was also behind Garbage Pail Kids. Really? And I had fact, no idea. What? He was behind Garbage Pail Kids. He was at the same time that he was completing Mouse. No. This basically Pulitzer Prize winning book. I think they had to, they said we can no longer give it to graphic novels or something after he did it. So he won some incredible prize. They at night he was writing Mouse, uh, a work of like staggering beauty, and during the day he was garbage pail uh, kids working on you know Slain Wayne and uh, Adam Bomb. So he and did all the crazy. illustrations as well. He didn't do the illustrations. He was the con- con- conceptual guy and okay. did a lot of the. Um, he was the. Uh, That's crazy. He he was the um, basically the editor almost the the guy named John Pound did it, um, but I bring this to mind because uh, rather than ask you how you're doing, I have a feeling we all know how we're doing about <laughs> eight weeks into this. Well, I was it, garbage pail kids for me are what I would call a guilty pleasure. And they have guilty in the sense that when I was a kid, you were literally found guilty if you had them. Like teachers would confiscate them and they were not to be tolerated and parents sort of looked the other way. Um, But we're going to start out by talking about guilty pleasures. But before we do, I want to know from you, do you have anything that you would consider a guilty pleasure? Was there a time in your life that you, when you were a kid, did you have anything like that? Uh, Is there anything that, you know, uh, you wouldn't want people to know that you were... uh, uh, secretly, like, super into? RJ, what are your guilty pleasures? I don't know. I mean, I've actually, the, the you know, thinking about music, I have a playlist on my phone called Guilty Pleasures, oh. um, which immediately came to mind. First of all, I'm still on iTunes, uh, just to give you an idea of how old I am. You know, and I do I do Pandora as well, not Spotify. Uh, Pandora, we, we you know, um, Brazilian jazz is on heavy rotation Ooh, in our household. Yes. Uh, quite Nothing a bit wrong with of... That. Also, we like the the sailing radio station. That's the Christopher mm-hmm. Cross song. There's a lot of good music there. Um, some Hall and Oates, you know. I love um, Hall and Oates. Yeah. Hall and Oates uh, so, makes me cry. I love it. 
Dave has to cover his mouth right now because he's I just... I love Hollow Notes. Are you kidding? They're great. I know. So actually, in my guilty pleasures list, there's some things of which that I'm not ashamed of. But there's a lot of uh, Charlie Puth. I'm not going to lie. Uh, there's quite a bit. Um, there's it, some from the, a... from the uh, Twilight soundtrack. Um, okay. Some Bananarama. A... Uh, some John Mayer. You know, okay. that's fairly oh, cringe. Nothing wrong with John Mayer. Really? Think, well, there you go. See, this I is the thing that qualifies. We're, we're, we're not guilty enough. I, mean, I think that my, qualifies, yeah. My biggest guilty pleasure are cars, right? I just spend oh, yeah. way too, way, like if you see my YouTube feed, it is all car videos. And I'm on jalopnik.com. I'm on Bring a Trailer. I'm on Auto Trader. Just constantly fantasizing about what um, what cars I would want. And luckily now I have more drivers in the household so I can somewhat justify mm-hmm. my my auto um, obsession. But it's, uh, yeah, I, I don't really like to talk about it. So <laughs> you, feel, you feel guilty about it. You clearly I feel do guilty. feel guilty about it, but I've always loved cars and I don't quite know what it is. I've thought about it. But um, I, there's some, I don't know, just joy, freedom, speed, beauty, escape, speed. I don't know what it is. I like, I like me some cars. What about you, Sarah? Gosh, guilty pleasures. Well, I was thinking about guilty pleasures right now that I have. Um, and one of them, and I'm wearing it, and I, I hope that you can't tell I'm wearing it, but um, is there is this heavily advertised to me on Facebook. Uh, it's like basically like a pot of pink makeup that you can use on your cheeks and your lips. And I was like, I just am super vain. And I was like, I need to feel like I'm doing something for myself in the midst of this because I'm for sure not putting on anything that takes longer than 20 seconds. Mm-hmm. And so the but the first week with it was really rough. It's more pigmented than I intended. And every time I would put it on, I would like do a Zoom call with one of my college students or just like glance in the mirror having just encountered a neighbor. And I wouldn't look quite like Marie Antoinette, but I would look like maybe the like random women in the background of her court, you know, just like real crazy red on my cheeks and my lips. Um, it's <laughs> so, like, I think of it every time. I'm like, I look like a French prostitute from the 1600s. Great. <laughs> in athleisure wear, you know, like the contrast is sharp. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's been like definitely a thing that's given me some pleasure recently that I feel kind of like weird about, I feel weird about being vain right now, but it does give me, I don't know. I mean, it makes me, I, I know I talk about my grandmother so much, but I think about them right now so much and like how in the midst of everything they dealt with, like they still had their nails done and they still got their hair done and like, it just makes mm. me feel better. So yeah, probably vanity is a my, guilty pleasure right now. Well, let's be, I mean, what are we all wearing? Like, should, should we talk about what we're wearing right now? Oh, God, it's not, no. it's, it's I, not a pretty I, sight. I mean, it's not, yeah. it is athleisure central. Yeah, I may or may not have multiple tears in my t-shirt. I'm not even showering every day, which is so different for like, I, I, I'm like, but good for your hair. About, it's but great good for, for your, my hair. Good for and your like, hair. Probably but your skin. I literally just change my clothes at night, spray myself with something and then like <laughs> pretend like I'm fine. Just get to, yep. Just get out some raid head to toe. That's that what is I so do. Funny. That's my, just kill everything that might be crawling on me and just call it a day. That's that's what it feels like with my kids. It's like st- yeah, we're, we're one step away from stand outside and the hose is coming oh out. Do you look up, Dave, and you're like, oh, my God, it's been four days. I, that's the worst thing with my children. Now, I will remember to shower, but I'll be like, we have not cleaned you in four days. 
Yes, I think that something like quarantine fatigue is definitely setting in, and we're going to talk about that. Well, I felt like a couple weeks ago I mentioned that we were watching Jane Austen films, and I got yeah. we, got, we got some very kind uh, fan mail from people who love Jane Austen and want to applaud that, and just were very complimentary of that, uh, you know, pursuit. And I just want to give you an update that uh, <laughs> we, we stalled out at Mansfield Park, um. and uh, and so it, that makes me sound like I don't. Uh, that's such a I don't know sophisticated pleasure. To, get, to show, watch Jane Austen films with your, and, and meanwhile, I, what I'm, what I, we stalled out doing was looking up garbage pale kids on eBay. Like so, yeah. that's what, that's Good. what, that, that's the real, uh, that's the reality. And, and this week, uh, Ian Olson on Mockingbird wrote a wonderful piece. Beautiful, beautiful article called The Acquittal of Our Guilty Pleasures. And he begins, actually, he mentions that he was in the car and surprised to hear the on the radio the stuttering beat to Dave Matthews Band's Ants Marching. Oh, the best. Stagger out of the radio. Unsettled, he writes, I flick the tuner in no particular direction, fleeing the sort of anywhere but here in sheer animal panic, reminded uncomfortably of it being my favorite song when I was 10 and the subsequent growth in taste I've hopefully accumulated since then. And then he writes later, he says, I think two things can be simultaneously true. The DMB can be the ideal band for frat guys to get hammered to while assuring themselves they contain multitudes, and ants marching can excite the nerve endings and the hidden recesses of my soul and set them vibrating with delight in spite of my awareness of the first point. I don't want that to be true, but it is. He goes on to say, our guilty pleasures rupture the husk of our confirmation biases. They testify, you are those things you let on to the world, but you are also these things. They are acknowledgments that there's more to us than our carefully curated public images would suggest. They extract and exclude the evidence of a concealed self that we don't want to let on. Guilty pleasures essentially say, others might enjoy such drivel, but not I which is only slightly less obnoxious than the classic, I thank you, Lord, that I am not like other men, Luke 18, <laughs> 11. They serve as boundary markers for who we think we need to be and who we will fight the outside world's disciplining scrutinies to become. The deepest, most fundamentally good news usually comes cloaked in the form of its opposite. So hear this good news. Only phonies need Christ. Positively put, inauthenticity is the price of admission. Maybe most of these songs really, truly aren't good in any critical sense. But if I could be honest with myself for half a moment, I know the deeper issue my guilty pleasures refract back to me is that I'm not all that good either. But Jesus wants me anyway. Now is a time, he's talking about Corona Land, when we don't really need another law choking out our attempts to cope. Your guilty pleasures and mine have been acquitted their questionability annulled by the superabundant righteousness of Christ. So add your favorites, your actual favorites, to his open-sourced mix, for his triumphal procession blasts all manner of music as we are led in the captivity of freedom. 2 Corinthians 2.14 This makes me feel so much better about the fact that I just got like three new princess books in the mail yesterday. <laughs> Who are they actually for, Sarah? <laughs> I mean, they're 100% for me. Um, I just, yeah, I I, I love this because I, I think, and RJ, you might be able to speak to this a bit, but I just felt so, and Dave, I said this a lot to you, like I was just fresh out of ducks after Harvey. It was really hard for me to care about what people thought. It was really hard for me to care about any sort of should in my life. 
And I felt like that was a warm up for this on some level. Um, and hmm. I'm That's hoping. A scary thought. Well, I mean, I, I'm, but I'm true, ho- you're right. Yeah, yeah, I'm hoping that we can. Um, I don't know that people can can find some freedom in this and find some joy in whatever their guilty pleasure. I mean, I I really have like I said to Josh the other day. I was like, I feel guilty because I feel like everyone around me is like learning how to bake or learning how to sew or learning how to whatever. And I'm just learning everything I possibly can about the Romanovs. (laughs) I'm going to be an expert in aristocracy. That's what I'm doing. I mean, that's like, and I freaking love it. And I don't know why, but it has given me so much joy. I mean, it's total escapism. It's a whole other world I get to walk into. Um, and so I, I love this, that like I can kind of like rest in that and not feel bad that I'm not reading enough theology or I'm not reading enough parenting books or I'm not whatever, you know. Um, I don't know. I, I love this. It doesn't end in freedom. It ain't, it ain't about the Lord. Him talking about what music he was listening to when he was 10 was hilarious. I think for me it was uh, Richard Marks and his flowing mm-hmm. mullet. And the the first CD I ever bought was uh, Debbie Gibson, Out of the Blue. Oh my God, you're so, so old. I am so <laughs> <laughs> That's that who's garbage, Debra- garbage pale generation right there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, my wife and I, are talk- we just talked about it today. We're like, we still, ha- we have not yet figured out how to make this work. Mm. We just don't even know. You know, we'll, we'll talk more about this as the uh, as the articles go on. But that whole sense of existing outside of time right now feels so true. Like, mm-hmm. what day is it? I can't even tell. I Yeah, I wish I had a little more time to cultivate guilty pleasures. Like I said, in my in, when I do have a moment, I'm straight to the car blogs and watching my car YouTube I videos. That's that. That. There you go. That's all it is. You know? yeah. um, talk no. to me next week. I'll have everything figured out. But, well, it's, but I'm just, the, the, the struggle <laughs> with guilt and uh, innocence as it relates to your own nagging voices of enoughness or not enoughness, good, bad, uh, productive, uh, lazy, all of these things, uh, that inner game of tennis, as some people talk about it. And it can attach itself to something as kind of silly as, you know, uh, telling people that you really love the Stone Temple Pilots, you know, and like surfing eBay for... for um, Garbage pail kids and mm-hmm. uh, old baseball cards. And one of the ways I've certainly coped with this interruption um, is to not only spend a lot of time with my kids, but is to retreat into my sort of inner child. And in that sense, mm. kind of bask in the uh, things I loved as a kid. I mean, that may be weird. Al sort of put us on that Michael Jordan. All of these things are almost a retreat back into a time when maybe life seemed easier or something like that. And I'm just trying to think about how my own guilty pleasures, their specific expression right now, is related to uh, a lack of time or a sort of retreating back. Because this next, one of the next article we're going to talk about is how Groundhog Day was a horror movie all along Mm. by Megan Garber. Now, many people, if you haven't watched Groundhog Day, now is either the perfect time or the worst time to watch that wonderful rom-com and one of the ironies about Groundhog Day which is a you know, which uh, stars uh, Bill Murray in probably one of his most famous roles is Phil Connors who goes to a small town to report about the Groundhog Day and gets trapped in a time loop where every day is the exact same because in February, during the Super Bowl, um, you know, the whole J-Lo Shakira thing almost overtook the fact that we had this amazing Groundhog Day commercial. 
where Bill Murray shows up in a Jeep and he sees, he goes through all the same town and sees all the same people, but this time he's happy because he's right. He's driving in a Jeep, RJ. I mean, I don't yes, know. I don't know is. what your car of choice would be, um, but uh, it's it was not a Jeep. But that's okay. Jeeps are good. Jeep, they work. So it was a good commercial. It's like we Why have not? A Jeep, so I, you do. I know you got a Wrangler. It's like a baby. vacation. Yeah, Woo, I know. Well, he could face eternity as the owner of a Jeep. Yeah, and well, that's how we feel. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this was ironic because it was you know lots of people have been talking about this movie in uh, not just how much they love it. Um, Recently, I'll read what Megan Garber wrote. She says, 25 years after it came out, Groundhog Day has adopted a new kind of urgency. Earlier this month, the Today Show featured a video essay explaining why every day feels like Groundhog Day lately. Esquire offered tips on how to avoid Groundhog Day during social distancing. On Facebook and Twitter, a meme has been proliferating, an image of Bill Murray as Phil announcing, it's quarantine day again. The comparisons here are reminders of how easily quarantine, that act of physical separation, can also cause people to feel distanced from time itself. Watching Groundhog Day again, uh, though, watching it now in this context, Mick Garber says, I was struck by how dark the film is before it gets light again. And I was struck most of all by the film's suggestion that the true source of Phil's agonies isn't repetition alone. It's the fact that Phil endures the endless days of not knowing how or whether the repetition will end. Phil, at once invincible and confined, comes to ask questions such as this one. What would you do if you were stuck in one place and every day was exactly the same and nothing that you did mattered? <laughs> this is comedy that operates at its edges as horror. It understands what Phil comes to realize, how easily time itself, when it refuses to move forward, can become monstrous. So I saw this movie in the theater with my mom. And gosh, in 1995, I was... Twelve, I don't know, remember how old I was. Um, and she just like we're like halfway through the movie, and she just turns to me and she goes, "This is dumb. We're leaving." (laughs) (laughs) She like could not cope. I mean, really, truly spoken by a woman who grew up in the country with nothing to do, who like moved to the big city as soon as possible. Just like the monotony of the sameness about Gilder. Um. I have since seen it as an adult and it is, it is really great. But um, yeah, it's funny. This was like the first reference people made in our neighborhood. Like neighbors would walk by, like I felt like we were probably three days into this and they were like, it's groundhog day. Um, It is that interesting thing of the, like the monotony of the sameness as a horror movie, like, which makes me think of like how terrifying some people's versions of heaven are to me. You know, like when people will be like, oh, in heaven, we'll just be like praising God every day and it'll be amazing. And I'm like, oh, my God, just like it. Like, is there a break like every day? Like, is there something else we're going to do? So that's, yeah, I don't know. It makes me think a little bit of, of how terrifying that that heavenly prospect can sound to a lot of us. But I, I'm fascinated by like all of the things we're watching right now that people love. Like, I totally think that um, this is like a, a running theory that is no one should listen to. But I think that Shit's Creek and Ozark are the exact same show. And they're essentially about rich people in quarantine. Like, and one is just funny. You know what I mean? Like, because huh. they're both stuck in these like little bitty, like tough 
like rural kind of rednecky towns. Like they're both trying to keep this secret from their children. Essentially, that this is all there is, <laughs> and they've made a lot of bad mistakes, and they can't leave. You know, um, I actually had to stop watching Ozark for that very reason. Shit's Creek's light enough that I could get through it, but um, it is fascinating, kind of what we're choosing to watch. Um, because I can't imagine watching Groundhog Day right now. I don't know. I feel like I would take very little comfort in it. But RJ, what about you? This article really hit home for me. Um, I would say, what do they say? You're stuck in one place and every day is the same and nothing you do matters. That's how I feel, if, except I feel like I'm stuck in one place and every day is the same and everything I do yeah. matters, which is almost certainly an inflated sense of my own importance. But I would almost relish if I knew that no one would remember tomorrow what I did today. You know, at this point, like that sounds like hell, don't get me wrong. But it feels like there are, maybe this is just in my capacity, in my job, basically, right? Like we're in this new normal. Maybe I'm kind of trying to figure out what church is, what it's going to be, how mm-hmm. to care for my people mm-hmm. when I can never see them. Um, it's just a very strange situation. And I also, I've realized how much of my best work I do when I'm not working. You know, when I'll be like driving to work or I'll be walking around the hospital or I'll be, um, and suddenly a thought will occur to me because I'm letting my mind wander a little bit and I'm not so focused on my work that that's a space where creativity can reign. And right now, there feels like there's very little space in my life for creativity, you know, because it feels like I'm never just randomly going somewhere. I'm never going anywhere. Um, I'm never not either working or watching my three-year-old. Um, and so that's been strange. I, mean, I think what Tom Hanks said too, um, you know, that this is, uh, there's no such thing as Saturday in this article. Yeah. You know, this is our, the, in the first sort of um, coronavirus Saturday Night Live, there's no such thing as Saturday um, because every day blends into the next or this woman... Um, in the Washington Post, Lisa Devlin, a stay-at-home mother, told the Washington Post recently, recently, first she said, you know, this is great. I get to chill out, be in my pajamas, do breakfast whenever, slow and easy. And then I realized very quickly that just turns the day into an amorphous mess. Yeah. And that's kind of how life feels right now, like an amorphous mess, like um, where you don't really get anything done, where you never feel fully present where there's very little space for creativity, there's no routine. Um, it's a weird, it's a weird space, man. So yeah, I, I this article jived very hard with mm. how I'm feeling mm. in the present in the present moment. What we're talking about, and we're gonna uh, is is this quarantine fatigue. The New York Times ran an article uh, earlier this week uh, where one doctor said that behavioral research suggests that people don't actually like to sit around and do nothing. Mm-hmm. And then they, they, they referenced that famous study. Off the space was wrong. <laughs> they offer off that famous study, you know, where subjects were told to sit in a room and do nothing. And then they, they instead they chose to give themselves electric shocks rather than sit uh, past time in silence. In another study in Kenya, two colleagues and I found that people got greater psychological satisfaction from working for payment than from being idle and receiving that same payment. This idleness aversion might drive our desire to get out of the house and do something. And I mean, it, it, for us, who are, who are people that talk about, 
you know, uh, things like passive righteousness and, and, you know, not having, you don't have to do anything to get God to, to love you or to, you don't have to earn his favor. And the, the entire, our entire paradigm or framework, uh, theological framework is premised on this sort of freedom to, as Sarah Denley Harrington put it, the freedom to do nothing. And the, then you, I always have the chorus in my head of people who are, who blanch at that and get really upset. You know, of course we have to do something and, uh, you, you, this sounds too nice. And you want to say, well, actually, have you tried doing nothing recently? It's like, we're all getting a crash course in how incredibly hard it is to sit around and do nothing. Um, that's, you know, I'm not even mentioning the fact that certain people's lives are falling apart while they're doing nothing and that right. impossibility of not having any control. Um, and yet, there is an idleness aversion that has taken over from what I've seen that has to do a little bit with um, with our uh, need to want to feel some sense of ourselves, and that has to do with our accomplishments, right? Yeah. I think there's also hand-in-hand. Hand, there's the freedom to do nothing, but there's also then the freedom to do something, right? The freedom totally to do what agree, you want they? to do. Yes. The freedom to... Yeah. yeah. That, that we, we don't... Our action is not out of guilt or compulsion or earning or anything, but there is something nice about just living life and being engaged with people. And that's the part of this nothingness that's so hard. It's like, I don't... By no means do I feel like I'm doing nothing. It's just I'm doing very little of what I want to do <laughs> and a lot and a lot of stuff that I don't want to do. And that's where that's that's sort of the the or or stuff that I feel like I have to do, you know, and not to not to earn anyone's favor or love, just to sort of like uh, keep the um keep the old family chugging along. Hmm. Something I mean, like that. I would say also like, and this has certainly been my own theological experience, so maybe it's not everybody's. But when I came to realize that, like, I didn't have to do anything to earn God's love, it, the idea of loving people and forgiving people and trying not to create dissension in the world became much yes. easier for me. Yes. And um, so that is a thing in the midst of this sort of call to do nothing that I've had to find different ways to do that. Um, to, yeah. To, and, and, and that there have there have just been stop points where I can't. Right. But, um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I do work worry more sometimes for my brothers and sisters who really, I think they're, I think a lot of them are really struggling right now with the idea that they can't do anything. Well, in a sense, what we're dealing with is, is we, we talk about the freedom to do nothing, which is kind of yeah. grace, but right now we're all living under the law of you are not al- doing nothing. You, you are might. not allowed to yeah. do anything. Right. Yeah. Thou shalt do nothing. And that's a very different, <laughs> yeah. uh, different scenario. To, to... Hence the protest in the streets in Michigan. And elsewhere, well, did, did you know, you don't tell me to do nothing. Yeah, yeah. Did, did you see? I will, uh, I will show you that I will do something. RJ, uh, Sarah, I think I sent it to you guys. Uh, that thing from NBC News that's saying the real reason why people decide don't want to wear masks, and then like w- <laughs> they quote one a prominent psychologist says, mm-hmm. "I think people just generally don't like being told what to do." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 That was like brilliant. I thought that was like from the Onion initially. Yeah. It was- yeah. Well, uh, Damon Linker writing in The Week. Damon Linker is a wonderful writer who is very thoughtful, but we, we haven't quoted him on here for at least a long time. He's writing about his own children. He's got a child in, uh, who's graduating from high school, and he talks about people he knows who are graduating from college and what it means when time stops. That's the name of this article, because um, no one really knows. Uh, he says, human beings live their lives in time. 
Our sense of ourselves in the present is always in part a function of our remembrance and constant reinterpretation of our pasts, along with our projection of future possibilities. We live for the person we hope to become. We look forward to who we will be a month or a year or a decade or more from now. And we commemorate the transitions from present to future with rites of passage celebrated in public with loved ones and friends. This makes us futural creatures. A high school senior applying for a university is living for the college student he hopes to be a year in the future. But what is a high school senior who can no longer look forward to a first day on campus next fall? We don't know. And he says, a life without forward momentum is to a considerable extent a life without purpose, or at least the kind of purpose that lifts our spirits and enlivens our steps as we traverse time. Without the momentum and purpose, we flounder. A present without a future is a life that feels less worth living because it's a life haunted by a shadow of futility. Faced with a pandemic, we have every reason to think we're doing what needs to be done to limit mass death as much as we can, but the toll on our psyches, no less than on our economy, could turn out to be far greater than any of us fully realized or anticipated when the lockdown began because of this detachment from time. This is me speaking. Um, I think he's, he's locating something very uh, present tense in uh, what's going on, that in some way we are future-oriented, we can't help but be, and yes, that, that can operate as an expectation or a, um, uh, a verdict that we're trying to constantly live up to or, or force ourselves to be and, and you know, edit out all of our guilty pleasures and be, become fully self-realized, and yet there's also a very hopeful, purposeful sense in which, you know, I... As I live as a Christian in the hope that I uh, life can get better, or that healing can happen, that God is with me, and if not, if not, if not in my present circumstances, then in heaven, that there's something else coming. I think for me uh, now that I now that I filter this through the lens of the garbage pail kids, that. Um, Part of the, the fixation is I've, I've been, been ordering these little cards on eBay just to have something to look forward to arriving. Mm-hmm. And, I, and this are, these are very, you know, this is like two bucks or something like that. So something that's innocuous and silly also returning me to my childhood, which, which brings me back in time and forward in time, which feels like a deliverance from the present, in other words, um, which may be a cowardly move, but it's a coping move. Um, so I don't know where, where did when when you read Linker's quite downbeat article, um, <laughs> where where did you RJ? You've got a senior in high school right now. Yeah, I do, and he's doing yeah he's doing okay. But we're we're thinking through all the same sorts of things. Like if he can't start school in the fall, is he going to take a gap year? If he takes a gap year, what's that going to look like? You know, honestly, I think. Losing the end of, her, of their senior year in a, in a lot of ways has been harder on parents, I think, than it has been on kids because they were looking forward to walking through all these rites of passage with their kids, which now they're not going to get. You know, they're not going to get the prom, they're not going to get the graduation, you know, they're not going to get the college orientation or the first parents' weekend, or at least not for a while. Um, and so, yeah, it feels very, everything feels very disembodied. You know, I, I talked about this in my sermon this past week, actually, how my my oldest son at some point in the past few weeks says, wait, wait, Dad, don't don't tell me. Let me guess what day it is, you know? Is it, is it Friday? And I was like, no, Jack, it's Tuesday. You know, he had absolutely no idea what, what day it was. So I, just, I think this is sort of unassailably true that our whole sense of what time is, thinking about the future, planning for the future, what does that even mean, trying to live in the present, wanting to get out of the present at the same time. 
um, yeah, it, it's completely upending the way we think about all these and, and feel about all of these things. Um, and Dave, what you said about ordering Garbage Pail Kids just to have something to look forward to, that makes so much sense. And I need to now start ordering some Garbage Pail Kids immediately or, or, <laughs> or, or some Matchbox cars. You know, uh, unfortunately, there is no Rutger. They didn't get uh, to the, the Dutch names. All right, there's a lot of Sarahs, though. Sorry. Oh yeah, that was a hot name in the '80s. <laughs> um, I mean, I we don't have anyone who's graduating from anything. We do have a kindergarten graduation we missed, but um, devastating. My husband says that's not a real thing. Yeah, <laughs> um, even though it's his church school, he's like, that's not a real thing. Um, but I I do work with college students and I do have some seniors and this has been incredibly hard on them to not have had kind of a final moment. Um, you know, in our, like a lot of seniors, they left early before spring break, assuming they would be able to come back and then like literally their kids that like couldn't clean out their rooms, you know? So, um, I think that's been, it's been profoundly difficult for that community. And also, yeah, not knowing what the fall is going to look like, not knowing, like just not feeling like there's a firm foundation under anything um, to look forward to. I mean, I've said on here, we, you know, we canceled our sabbatical this summer. And I think that was actually a really merciful thing that happened very early. I mean, Josh very early was like, we're, you know, we're, we're gonna have to cancel sabbatical. And um, it just shifted everything Mm. so quickly. Like there was so much loss in that because we had literally mapped out like, here's where we're staying. We paid for Airbnbs that we may or may not get our money back on. Like we, you know, we had done all. So like the, the sort of jarring exercise of going through and canceling all that was actually like, oh, we have no idea what this is going to look like. Um, and I keep pushing for us to do something this summer and he keeps seeing like, we don't, we have no idea what this will look, you know, it's a very strange thing um I think I'm taking some solace honestly and like and I think this has so much to do with the life stage we're at so this is not advice giving um I think we find some solace in like every day there's like a like we kind of know that there's a thing that we're gonna do that day and that gives our kids something to look forward to and I can kind of hitch my wagon to their joy a little bit and that's helped Um, even if it's just like a tea party or it's like, you know, on Fridays we always order pizza and watch a movie. Like there's a little bit of like, um, that smaller thing to look forward to. Um, I have not ordered $2 things. I've ordered chairs, uh, which I immediately canceled. (laughs) Go big, uh, go big. minutes later, I was like, oh my God, don't order a chair right now. I said to Josh, I was like, hey, there's this chair I've always wanted. I'm going to order it. He's like, are you kidding me? The kids are destroying our furniture. This is the worst time to get a new chair. Trampoline. Invest in a trampoline. I canceled that. Yeah. No, thank you. We've already broken our own this year. Um, yeah. <laughs> I thought about it. I've heard great things about energy running down in trampolines, but. Mm, no, um, we have. Uh, I, I can't help but think about how we always talk about God being outside of time and space mm, in a time yeah. when we all feel like we're sort of outside time and space. Not, yeah. not that I want to. I could say, oh, I, we, we, we just, we, we're all like God right now. Um, I read some prayers talking about how God, who is who is not bound by time and space, who is already, you know, is is already waiting for us as as well as present. And there's something I think that t- to be reminded of that 
about while we are we're both confined and like disoriented by our uh, our temporality that God is not and um I have a feeling we're going to say that that didn't actually last forever but it was the feeling of something that could last forever right yeah you know I think one thing I realized that I as you guys have been talking that I've been looking forward to is like oh you know, give it like the next few weeks, maybe like a month or two, things are going to kind of get back to normal and I can look forward to things getting back to the way they were before. And now I'm not so sure, you know, and part of it is trying to figure out, am I, am I, which way am I going? Am I sort of holding out until things get back to normal, in which case I can sort of survive or is it time to transition into settling into and thinking through sort of a new, a, a totally new way of being, you know, and, and mm-hmm. of working and of raising kids and of trying to do school? And probably the answer is somewhere in between. But even the uncertainty of how am I supposed to think about the present and the future? When is it going to end? And am I just holding out until I can sort of take a deep breath? Or, or do I need to just rethink everything? I definitely, I I said this early on and I definitely feel this way and this won't sound any shinier or brighter than what you've said, but I definitely think we need to be listening to the widows. I continue to think that because every, I do think everything has changed. I mean, I saw this meme yesterday, Josh and I were laughing at it about, um, remember how we all used to like, we used to let the birthday person like blow. I'm so bad at means, but blow all over the cake and then we'd eat a piece, you know, like when you blow your candles out, you blow all over the cake. Wasn't that weird? And it's like, there are going to be things that are totally going to shift. And that's hard. I don't want to downplay that. That's really hard and it's scary and it's unknown. It's all those things. But, and I feel, I hate when people do this. So I'm here, I'm doing it. I hate when people spiritualize stuff uh, too heavily, but I do take a lot of comfort in the fact that I'm not alone in this, that God is with us in this and that I can find my rest there and that there are going to be certain things that we've lost that weren't the worst things to lose. I mean, Dave, I saw on Instagram, um, your brother Simeon was posted about all the family time they've had together. And he said, career is a false God. And that really like hit me. Like, it's like, and I know that I'm privileged enough to say that I know all those things, but that really hit me. Like, it's like, there's a certain amount of the kind of unknown that I'm okay with. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, but it's complicated. There's so much death and sadness and I feel guilty seeing anything positive in it too. I don't know. I just, I think widows, they just go, they move on with their lives. They've lost a lot. They're unsure financially. They, they're caring for their children. They're, I just think there's so much wisdom in the room from women who've been through that, that we could all be listening to as we navigate this in a different way. That's, I think that's, that's kind of brilliant. I, I'll, I'll stick with you on it, Sarah. I, my sense is that all of these missives that are coming out, and you know, the fact that Pep Boys Auto Shop is telling me their update on their COVID-19 practices and things like that. It feels like everyone's in a manic episode, uh, like a, furiously writing in their yes, living room. Yes, yes. Anyway. I'm not saying, exactly. 
I think I think that bishops and uh, people in churches are doing yeah. just doing their best with what they got. But I think yeah. that the the what is uh, uh, I saw Alan Jacobs had written something. It's like I wish I could write a computer program that just would go into all these articles and every five sentences would just in, insert the line. Nobody knows anything. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, like like it or not, we are at the mercy of something that's larger than us, and it, the 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 it, the event itself will be an ordeal. It has been an ordeal, and it will be an ordeal, and there will be trauma, and there will be death, and there will be all of this horror. I'm a little, at this point, I get a little sick of trying to avoid spiritualizing it because I yeah. happen, I don't think that God exists apart from yeah. it. Now, there is, we were so afraid of silver lining something that uh, we can't say what's actually happening, and that the a lot of the ways in which we were living going into this were terrible, and or or at least we're not we're not life giving, and we're we all felt like we were at the mercy of this. At least I think a lot of people felt like they were at the mercy of this mammoth tidal tidal wave of keeping up, and this treadmill life, and that goes for people all up and down the socioeconomic ladder. And so I, while I wish that the instrument of change was something that didn't involve such wanton uh, suffering and sadness and uh, uh, death. And when you hear about what's going on in certain nursing homes, it's just deeply, deeply disturbing. And yet I also, um, I do have hope about the future because any kind of reset to me is never a, never necessarily a bad thing. And I also see like Sarah, you're talking about widows and um, RJ, we're, we're talking about, things to come in the future. And Sarah, you said that you we're not alone in it. And I think God is with us and Jesus is with us. And that's, that's, uh, we'd be ignoring part of our other experience to, to say that we don't see that. Uh, Todd Brewer was talking about actually about what it's like to be, uh, living in the world in which Jesus inhabited. Uh, he wrote in a brilliant article for our website called Exorcisms, Jesus and Modernity. And this sort of builds on both Groundhog Day and the uh, uh, situation we're describing. Uh, the idea, he's talking about demons and exorcism. The idea that demons are somehow real and that they can enter into people is the stuff of horror movies. We live in a thoroughly disenchanted world, and reading the Gospels' exorcism stories today feels to many like a surreal journey into an ancient land where Jesus appears to be some kind of witch doctor. So uncomfortable with the very idea of demons, many of us hedge around exorcism stories to glean what we can without appearing insane, refashioning Jesus into a proto-psychologist while simultaneously condemning the ignorance of his social setting. The world into which Jesus walks is thoroughly ruled by other gods and their powers of evil. The world is not a neutral place, but hostile to God. It actively attempts to thwart his life-giving rule. The exorcism stories are the individual brushstrokes on the larger canvas of Jesus' ministry against evil. It is no accident that the battle against Satan is the very first thing Jesus does after his baptism. From start to finish, the entirety of Jesus' ministry can be categorized as an exorcism. The Bible's language of false gods and the demonic may be passe, but its insights are not. People are manifestly not as free as they wish to be and routinely do what they otherwise would not. 
What we choose is often already chosen for us, particularly in this digital age. Websites determine what we view on the internet based, based upon prior history, reinforcing our vices and virtues. Algorithms amplify who you have been to prevent the kind of seismic change of personhood Christianity might call conversion or repentance. The constant accumulation of market data is exploited to direct our desires and beliefs more than we care to admit, just as seamlessly as political propaganda actively shapes how we view world events. We live in a vast complex of systems that manipulate our very desires and imprison us to be who we've always been or worse. The power of all these systems comes from their invisibility, imbuing us with a false belief in autonomy as you click yet another cute cat video. We might not think of these things as evil principalities, but that doesn't mean they aren't. Those who opposed Jesus probably didn't think of themselves as demonic. We all serve somebody, whether we know it or not. Yet Jesus came to liberate humanity from the forces of evil, to expel from us the powers that enslave and kill. He came to free us from the seculosities we worship and think will save us. He came to delete our browser histories, our prejudices, our tracking cookies and malware, our addictions, presumptions, and our prejudices. We all need to be exercised from something to hear the gospel that banishes the darkness and brings new light. It's really good. <laughs> I know Todd sort of uh, lays it lays down the gauntlet a little bit. Um, it is funny hearing him talk about um, the world being actively opposed to the purposes of God. And again, you know, we check our we, we try to check our privilege here a lot on the mocking cast. But I've always been fascinated by I feel like I've experienced the opposite in a lot of ways. Actually, you know, I think about what Robert Fair Capen says about how. Our deepest fears very rarely come true, you know, like the, sh the other shoe doesn't actually drop, you know, how people actually do get away with things all the time, <laughs> you know, how the, wor the world is actually strangely a more, some, almost a more gracious place than we're prepared for it to be. Um, and not to say that everything in my life has always worked out the way I wanted it to, because it certainly has not. But even when I've gotten to the other side of, of difficulties, I feel like I've experienced God's presence and provision in the midst of those difficulties. Um, so that's just interesting to hear him say how the world is actively opposed to the redeeming work of God or the good news of the gospel, because I don't, I don't know. Again, when I, when I actually think about my life and I talk to people who believe in God it does actually a lot of the time feel like things do kind of work out. You know, is that totally is that totally wrong? What do you guys think? Do you feel like there's an active force working against, um, I don't know, your ministry or your propagation of the gospel, or what do you think? I mean, I don't know that I think about it working specifically against like my ministry um, because I I get a little. Uh, leery of people who think that Satan is specifically headed gunning for their ministry. I'm like, please, he's got other people he's dealing with. Um, but I do think that the world is actively against it, against grace, against mercy, against forgiveness, against the gospel. Yeah, I do. I mean, I, I mean, it doesn't make me like really fun at like mom cocktail hour, but, um, you know, I, 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 I think that there's, I mean, I, one only need glance at, you know, 
Instagram right now to know, you know, people are still trying to sort of prove their value and prove their, um, that they're somehow like managing this whole nightmare situation. Well, um, I, I really love that, that Todd was willing to go there in terms of the way that we can really easily write off people being, um, you know, possessed. maybe possessed or dealing with with demons, we can really easily write that off as as a you know sort of a psychotic thing, and 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 we also like we want to write it off too because we don't want to say we want to say that those people are evil, right? That not that some evil spirit is within them for a whole multitude of reasons, because um, then that could mean the evil spirit could be in us, and we want people to take accountability for their actions, and so. Yeah, I don't know if I agree with you. I, I kind of, but I, I, but also like I'm thankful for your hopefulness, if that makes sense, RJ. Like I'm thankful that you do feel that way. Um, I mean, I think that's the fine line that Mockingbird walks, right? Is that we are a weird group. I mean, this this happens more now, but certainly when when you guys founded Mockingbird years ago, we were really one of the only groups that was clearly Christian but also was like in like in the world you know like speaking to the world seeing God's grace in the world and so I think there's a fine line between that and also acknowledging that the world has a real problem with like a lot of the tenets of of mercy and forgiveness um that we hold really dear and I, I think I think to, to also to understand some sort of possession to have at least allow that back into one's understanding of human nature or the wor- totally. of the world actually yeah. is a compassionate thing because you can dissociate the person from their crippling problem um, or th- I mean and, and in fact a m- malicious problem because you know I, I was thinking about something that was really malicious I'm watching a, a couple get divorced right now and there was you know like any divorce it, it, it everyone's best friends one day and then the next day uh you know you, you didn't get enough sleep and and someone says the wrong thing and Ba-boom. i guess it's a nuclear options are being pulled and malice gets in there in a way that feels the person feels almost possessed by a kind of rage that uh you almost say isn't them and and we were dealing with some another another suicide here and from a person that um one of the things they said was that they kept saying, oh, she died by suicide. Or, but it, you want to say, well, it wasn't, it wasn't her. She, was, right. she had a psychotic break or she was possessed or however you want to put it. It still is able to leave some window crack open. I mean, I'm very much with Sarah. I, I think that the, the world is, a, is opposed to uh, a lot of times good things. I was watching a um, documentary about the making of Phantom of the Paradise, which is a wonderful cult film from the 70s. And Brian De Palma, the guy who made Scarface, made it. And he he was part of the film as a commentary on the industries and of Hollywood in particular. And, uh, you know, we, we read about the, what that system is perpetuated in ter- when it comes to women. But he, he was talking about it in, in terms of art. And he said that the, only, the system only ever makes something good by accident. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I kind of believe that. Yeah, I mean, I think the other thing I think this pushes me to think about, which I really value, is that when we talk about demonic possession, 
when we talk about the forces of evil, usually we're, well, we're always talking about it in terms of other people because we don't want to talk about it ourselves. And we always talk about it in this really grand way, right? Like we talk about murder and we talk about racism and we talk about like these big things, but malice in any form is not of God. And I certainly, I had this experience actually yesterday where um, and this is just a PSA to all you conservative guys from other denominations that send me like well-meaning emails asking me to justify women's ordination. I'm not responding to those emails anymore, but I got one this week and I put something up on Facebook that was kind of sassy and was like, I'm sick of getting these emails. <laughs> Figure it out. I'm sorry you like me and can't coalesce that with how you feel about women's ordination. <laughs> Paul's in your court. And it was like definitely me being frustrated and tired and, um, you know, wanting to put up something oppositional on social media. And what's, what, what for me, when I have this experience, it's, there's like a sort of a physical embodiment that's like very angry, very self-righteous. Right. And then people wrote all these really encouraging, some really beautiful things underneath about women's ordination and how much they like me and all this stuff. But then there were people that wrote, and completely from my perspective, right, they were pro what I was saying, but really hateful things. And I was like, oh, I've created malice. Mm. Like, in the midst of this, I've created divisiveness in the midst of an already, I mean, we would say, we would have said six months ago, like, I'm creating divisiveness in the midst of, like, a really chaotic, you know, landscape. But, like, I'm creating divisiveness in the middle of a bomb going off right now. You know what I mean? And so, like, this morning, I mean, I have been, like, thinking about this post and praying about this post. This morning, I was like, I'm just going to delete it. Like, and, and I'm, you know, I get that it was encouraging to a lot of women and I'm thankful for that but like it created malice and do I think that in that moment I was possessed by something evil something beyond myself that I needed to sort of make this discord at a hundred percent like a hundred percent um, I'm tired. I'm overdone. I don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. I'm probably more vulnerable to that stuff right now. So I don't know. I, I do. I ha- feel, I feel the need to say that. Cause I think sometimes when we talk about this stuff, we can really sort of not make it personal and we can also make it so big that it'll never apply to us. And I don't know. I just think it does. Well, as you guys were talking, that's what struck me. Like, don't, don't get me wrong. I have no doubt about the existence of evil in the world. And I absolutely, um, you know, believe in the demonic. At the same time, I think what I meant was at least in the last decade or so, I've consistently been struck that when I talk about the gospel, in either teaching, preaching, or interpersonally, talk about grace, mercy, forgiveness, all this sort of thing, how little resistance I've encountered. And no matter what someone's background, theologically, politically, whatever, um, I haven't experienced that kind of opposition being like, what are you talking? Like, this is ridiculous. You know, you know, we're coming up on the stoning of Stephen this week. Um, and no one has tried to stone me recently for talking about Jesus. In fact, people seem to be open to it. I don't know. So maybe maybe there's a dividing line between what I've you know, what I've experienced personally in the midst of my ministry. Maybe I'm just not saying anything. <laughs> Maybe I'm just not 
You know, I'm certainly not, I'm not writing anything as saucy as you are, Sarah, you know? No, I don't think we're going to solve this one uh, as we speak, but I, I, it is something, I thought Todd's article is worth consideration no matter who yes, you are, where you're coming absolutely. from. Yes, um, I, I want to close with uh, something that Tom Holland wrote. Tom Holland, are the, the, who would have been speaking to us in New York this past year, who wrote Dominion. He wrote something for The Telegraph, in, uh, in the, he's, this applies to his context, where he says, church leaders should not be talking like middle managers in this time of crisis. He writes, uh, he talks about the book of Job for a while, but then he says, over the course of the millennia, the church's teaching on the obligation of the rich and healthy to care for the poor and sick have proven so successful that they no longer depend on the church itself. Its ancient sense of mission to care for the vulnerable and the weak has been largely subsumed within the welfare state. The sense of calling felt by Christians to care for the victims of pandemics, one that reaches back to the terrible plagues that swept the Roman world in the first and second centuries, has been nationalized. The NHS, the National Health Service, is now the object of our reverence. As you see, you can he links to a bunch of you know kids with their rainbow drawings because that's the NHS symbol right now. Yet this does not mean the church is wholly redundant. The welfare state can provide care for the sick, but it cannot provide what Christianity over the course of the past 2,000 years has provided to so many countless people and to such transformational effect, which is an explanation for the existence of suffering that offers the assurance as well that all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. Such a message in a time of noisome pestilence has historically proved a comforting one. And therefore, by rights, the sweep of coronavirus should present Christian leaders with an opportunity. Yet it is one that all the mainstream churches in this country, he's referring to the United Kingdom, seem to be fumbling. Rather than speaking with the voice of prophecy, rather than explaining to a grieving and anxious people how the dead will rise into the blaze of eternal life, rather than proclaiming the miracles and mysteries that they uniquely exist to proclaim, church leaders seem to have opted instead to talk like middle managers. Parroting the slogans of the Department of Health and Social Care may conceivably help save lives, but it seems unlikely to win many souls. If ever there were a time for the churches to wrestle with the questions that so tormented Job, a time of global pandemic would surely seem to be it. If they are not to seem merely eccentric branch offices of the welfare state, they need to recapture their confidence and take a risk, the risk of seeming odd. Oh my gosh, I love that phrase, eccentric branch offices of the welfare state. <laughs> it's just like, get us in there. We can do a terrible job of this. Um, I I mean, I really love this and agree with this. I think that there, because we are getting 30-page documents from our bishops, and there is this real sort of um, need to kind of come on and give all the information at once. And... And, and also, like, right, that gives us something to say, um, which is a little easier than having to um, go there, go where he's calling us to go, go into the deep theology and the, the deep sense of the cross um, that really is the word that people need. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I totally agree. I, I, I really love this. I mean... Look, bishops have to write those documents, but but I, I I do notice that like some of us are completely regurgitating those documents, and then some of us are not. And I I th I think people are are looking less for. I mean, it's so interesting that the church, in a lot of iterations, has just become like another place where you can like hear the rules read again. Um, and that's unfortunate. I mean, just to name it, 
the church was kind of like that before this happened in a lot of iterations, you know, it was like, do more, be more, be better, work harder, fix things, save the world. And now it's like, wear masks, stay home, wash your hands, you know, worry about people a lot because that helps. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, as, as opposed to just this reassurance that I think the one thing that we can tell people right now is both that they are not alone, which is a very comforting thing, that you are not alone, but also that people are not dying alone. You know, I mean, I think for me, that has been like the resounding message as a Christian is just over and over again. And we've said it on here, but that people are not dying alone. You know, people don't die alone. God is with them in that. We are sure of that. And that's, um, I mean, I wish we were hearing more of that from from churches, but I don't know. RJ, what do you think? How do you feel as a middleman, RJ? <laughs> as a, just a, a mouthpiece for the uh, ruling establishment. That's that's what I'm that's what I'm doing. Right. Um, I I just thought what he said about the integration of suffering with divine purpose being such a powerful force that if if you really in those moments when you truly believe that. That, that suffering is somehow redemptive and that whatever difficulty you may be experiencing is not a mark of God's absence, but might in fact be a mark of his presence, and that he is always at work in all things, good and bad, for the good of those he loves, you can survive anything. If you really believe mm. that, you can survive absolutely anything, mm. and that's just shot through Christian theology, right? That That God is powerfully at work in the midst of the most difficult circumstances. And that, you know, people don't want to talk about suffering, and yet this is clearly a moment when um, people are talking about it and talking about uncertainty, anxiety, um, the loss of, uh, you know, situation within physical time and feeling disembodied. And so there is a moment to talk about all of those things and bring all of those resources to bear in the lives of people um, I think what I'm trying to balance in my own preaching and teaching is um, hitting this thing head on and really speaking specifically into it, but then also not always doing that, right? Also trying to take right. a broader perspective and to speak as if there is a truth and there's a God who's bigger than this, and try to balance those two things, right? Try to speak directly into it, but also to recognize that there's a little bit of a need, I don't want to call it escape, but to talk about something else. You know, we, we don't have to be talking about this all the time. We have to be talking about it, but also being bear, but also bear witness to, um, uh, you know, the larger sweep of God's Word, because this is not the only thing people are experiencing right now, right? People, I, you know, I talked to a guy today, people are still falling in love, you know, uh, uh, people yeah. are still having children, uh, people are still... Um, going about their regular day-to-day -day lives in such a way that they need to hear about how God interfaces with that too. Um, and so so somehow to how to talk about this while also talking about more than this. Um, that's what I find yeah. myself trying to do. And for myself as well, right? To think to be thinking about this moment. But then I'm I am caught a couple times a day where I'm like, oh yeah, for just a moment there, I forgot we were in the middle of a global pandemic. What a crazy thing. Mm -hmm. You know, and how nice that was to just uh, escape from that for a moment. Well, just as the just as the the exorcisms are awkward for us when when sort of we twenty 
first century disenchanted, you know, Westerners read them. There, it's pretty awkward right now to read certain passages. I mean, I was think talking to uh, a colleague yesterday about, you know, when when the paralytic is lowered to Jesus and he's sitting there uh, teaching. Um, and uh, he mm. heals the man, and he but but he does it. He says he addresses first his his spiritual need, and he talks about his his, his sins are forgiven. And then he says, okay, so so that you believe that his spiritual need, his spiritual uh, has 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 been met. Therefore, then I'll address his physical situation. I'll say, get up, take your mat, and, and walk. And uh, sometimes I just don't. In the rhetoric of the church or the rhetoric of Christians, you you wonder if 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 they. That's awkward. That's awkward in this time to say that people's phys- spiritual needs are actually not just on the same level as their phys- physical needs, but are more important, like that they're a primary. That's, now, I don't know what that means in terms of putting your neighbors at risk and things like that. I don't, I'm glad I'm not a bishop having to draft those documents. However, yeah. I am a person who believes that the, if the church somehow communicates that the the mental health cost or the demonic cost or whatever that that, that Damon Linker is talking about that Groundhog Day sort of shows uh, if the church communicates that that is not important or not incredibly it's the most it, important thing it, it's it's bullseye that's where we're where we're at and that's um, then I think we really have abdicated something. Um, Important, and I think in some cases it feels a little bit like that. You you read these things, it's like, what is in this um, that wouldn't be in something that I would see on NPR? You know, I want to I want to know how is this? Is there any distinction between as our, Sarah as what you said? Is this just the rules being read in a slightly nicer tone of voice, or is there something distinctly Christian? Something that says that your spiritual reality is something that needs to be addressed and and urgently during this time and the death and the resurrection to hear the promise of the resurrection during this time. Um, that's why I think Holland is so. Um, as a person who, you know, as we, we've talked about before, he's not a professing Christian, and he yet he's sitting there saying, come on, guys, this is what right. we, we need you to say something to us. You've got something to say. Please say it. Right. Um, yeah. Don't just parrot what, what we're hearing from everyone else. And Sarah, yeah. I think you're right. That was what was going on beforehand. Yeah. Well, I mean, the question, that's such an interesting question about, like, what am I hearing that's always actually when I hear preaching is always my question is like, what am I hearing here that I'm not, I wouldn't. What's distinctly Christian. Else. And essentially. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's, that's a, that's a really, that was a powerful question before this, but now it's like, it's even more powerful. Right. Because we're all living under the law. So just preaching law is really. <laughs> <laughs> well guys, we've, we've, uh, this has been a, a good long talk and, uh, lots yeah. of, hopefully there'll be some fruit, uh, from it and that we will continue to talk next time. I thought I'd close, but there's an amazing poem that went up on, um, the Atlantic monthly of all places. James Parker wrote something called the coronavirus prayer. And I'm mm. going to recite that for us as we close and, uh, we can pray it. You can also just listen to it. Here he goes. <clears throat> Dear Lord, in this hour of doorknobs and droplets, when masks have canceled our personalities, in this hour of prickling perimeters, sinister surfaces, defeated bodies, and victorious abstractions, when some of us are stepping into rooms humid with contagion, and some of us are standing in the pasta aisle, in this hour of vacant parks and boarded up hoops, 
when we miss the sky-high roar of the city and hear instead the tarp that flaps on the unfinished roof, the squirrel giving his hinge-like cry, and the siren constantly passing, to you we send up our prayer as follows. Let not heebie-jeebies become our religion, our new ideology with its own jargon. Fortify us, Lord. Show us how. What would your saints have been doing now? St. Francis, he was a fan of the human. He'd be rolling naked on Boston Common. He'd be sharing a bottle. No mask, no gloves, shielded only by burning love. But I don't think we're in the mood for feats of antic beatitude. In New York City and in Madrid, the saints maintained the rumbling grid. Bless the mailman and equally bless the bus driver, vector of steadfastness. Protect the bravest, the best we've got. Protect the rest of us. Why not? And if the virus that took John Prine comes, as it may, for me and mine, although we've mostly stayed indoors, well, then, as ever, we're all yours. Until further notice, amen. 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 Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. Praise the Lord.